Radio. You're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. IRE, with you on your beat for 40 years. I'm Sean Shinneman, and this week, Laura Poitras, the decorated documentarian most well-known for her Edward Snowden slash NSA files reporting. Prior to that, she embedded in Iraq in the mid-2000s and made My Country, My Country, and in 2010, she released The Oath, which centers on a former bodyguard to Osama bin Laden. Her documentary on Snowden, which is titled Citizen 4, won the 2015 Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. That all started with a single email. I'm a senior government employee in the intelligence community. I hope you understand that contacting you is extremely high risk. The man you just heard was Robert Cribb, an investigative reporter at the Toronto Star and the moderator for this discussion you're about to hear. Cribb talked to Poitras at the IRE conference earlier this year, and we've cut their discussion into three parts. In the clips you're about to hear, she touches on getting a foot in the door and earning a source's trust, and goes into detail about Snowden. In this first clip, Cribb asked Poitras about the access she was able to secure for My Country, My Country, which chronicled the months leading up to the Iraqi election and profiled Dr. Riyad, a physician and Sunni political candidate. So, I mean, when I actually went there, there actually wasn't a country. You couldn't just land in Iraq. Um, so, uh, what it was a the access was very incremental. Um, I was my initial interest was in documenting the election process, and um, and I wanted to understand what I thought was a contradiction. Be, be, between occupying a country to bring democracy. I thought this was a contradiction, but I was interested in it. Um, and, uh, and so the first bit of access I got was I approached the, the US military civil affairs unit and submitted a letter and said I was a documentary filmmaker and I was interested in documenting the election process. And, um, and they wrote back, actually, the military writes back pretty quick. So I was in dialogue with them um, pretty, pretty quickly and ended up going to, to Fort Bragg and met with a general and, and said what I was interested in doing. And this, the, actually, the day that I was, went to, to Bragg um, was, I th- think, the week that the Abu Ghraib photographs broke. So being a person who, you know, a journalist at that moment maybe wasn't, you know, they weren't, <laughs> whatever. It was, it was a really devastating time, I think. I, I mean, I think for the country it was a devastating time to see these photographs. Um, and, uh, and ultimately the, the general said, okay, we're going to let you document. So I had a, a, a letter from a, jur- from a general saying that I could film, which then allowed me to get on a plane. Um, and I should say that, so in terms of my filmmaking, I oftentimes go into the field alone, so I do my own camera and sound. And th- that's what I did in this case, and not just because I'm a solitary person, but I also didn't want to have the risk of having somebody else with me. I mean, that was something, I, I, it was, was a pretty dangerous time to be um, filming in Iraq. So I got there, and I'd put in a request to spend a week in the green zone, and then I wanted to go to the south, because I thought in the south it would be safer, and I'd be able to have more access with civilians, with, with Iraqis, and not be kind of sequestered. So I get to the green zone, and, um, and I realize two things pretty quickly. One is it was the most interesting place to be in terms of if I was interested in the elections. It was where the, the UN was based. It was where the contractors was based. It was where the people who were planning the elections were. 
Um, and I also realized that, um, that they'd created a, b a bit of a prison. I mean, that, you know, that by sort of sequestering themselves into, in behind these, these walls, um, there was very little um, communication between the U.S. military and, and the civilian population. In fact, the green zone was the, what was considered to be a safe place, and the rest of Iraq, you know, everywhere, was the red zone. And uh, so I, I, I thought both that I had really... Um, amazing access to the military and, the, and the, what was going to happen, but, um, but I also felt that I didn't want to replicate this you know, division between only make a film about the U.S. military. And then um, in about the third week I was there, um, a lieutenant colonel said that there was going to be an inspection of Abu Ghraib prison led by Iraqis, and he said if I put in a request that he would try to get me permission to go to, to Abu Ghraib and I sent a lot of emails, um, and ultimately they let, me, they let me film, and that's where I met Dr. Riyadh, was at Abu Ghraib prison. He was with a group of Iraqis um, inspecting the prison, and it was there that I, I, I met him. I said I was a filmmaker, um, and I wanted to film him as he led the inspection. I put a microphone on him, and at the end of that day, he said, he said you need to come to my clinic and see what's happening there. So then um, I started just, well, I started filming both inside the green zone and then um, uh, with the family, which is what you see here. And I would, um, I was living inside the green zone. I had a trailer um, that I was, I, somebody had given me a key. Someone in the military just gave me a key to a trailer. So I had a place to live. And then I would just walk outside the gate and I would get picked up. I'd cover my hair so that I wouldn't appear to be Western. I, you know, kept my camera as discreet as possible, and I'd be met on the other side of um, one of the one of the gates, and get met by somebody in the family who would then take me into into Baghdad, and I would film for several days, and then get dropped off. And so that's what I did for. Um, I was in Iraq for uh, eight months. I, I left once. Did you live? with the family for a time? So I would stay, yeah, I would, I would stay with them for a number of days and then I would go back and, and be in the green zone. I, I spent more time within the green zone than I spent um, with the family. And then as I was there, then I got more access. So then the UN, I mean, I think one of the things about getting access that I would never have gotten the access that I did if I tried to like work it out from New York. I mean, I had to be on the ground. There was no other way. So particularly access to the UN and the election process, um, I could never have just put in a request in New York to the public, to some like public affairs <laughs> official. They would have just said no. But when I was on the ground, I was there when this sort of first team came in. So there was only three people from the UN um, doing election planning when I um, got there. And then a whole team you know, built up over time. So by the time the elections actually happened, I knew everybody who was involved, and, and it allowed me to have really extraordinary access, including um, later to the Australian contractors, mercenaries who were hired to um, protect the whatever ballots. So, so the lesson, the practical lesson for, for us is, what, what can we take away from that? that to, you, a, you gotta show up, you gotta be on the ground. You, it's better to ask uh, forgiveness than permission. What, yeah, what I, mean, I mean, I had permission. I just... I, you had I was permission just, for a week. Was, you didn't have permission for... Right, that's true. I was, I mean, I was technically squatting. Right. Um, yeah. Right, so you didn't have permission to squat. So right, but I did, have, I did, have, I did have an agreement. I mean, I had permission to film the U.S. military's, 
the Civil Affairs Unit, and they all knew that, and I had badges, and you know, I was in e regular, they gave me an email address, I landed there, they, if the person, I got, I had an MCI phone, do people remember the MCI phone? So they had these, you know, it was one of the really bright ideas of the occupation, where they all got there, and they decided that everybody in the U.S. military should have a phone number that was a Westchester number, a 914. <laughs> so... Uh, and there were these, it, was ama it was an amazing phone. I mean, there were, you could call anywhere in the world and never, you know, never receive a bill. But the problem, <laughs> the problem was is that no Iraqi could ever call anyone in the U.S. military because you would have to call Westchester. Right. Um, but, th but the Americans could speak to themselves. And so, but I got there, and you know, there was somebody who's like, here's a phone. I was like, okay, great, I'll take the phone. And here's a badge. I said, fine. He's like, here's an email address. And so I had an or, or, Orha email address. And was, you know, so I was there officially. I mean, it was not that I... But I was there officially. I don't think that they thought that I would walk outside the gate. Yeah. I mean, some people knew that I was traveling and filming and in the military, and I think that their feeling about it is that they had um, respect for the fact that I was willing to, um, to take the risk. And, and so I think that, there, that, there, they, that the kind of access that was possible was possible because of the unique set of circumstances. Yeah of being in a, in a situation like that. You would also have been a, a dramatic anomaly there. You were a, a, a single woman carrying a camera, not following the press. The other lesson, by the way, was, which we talked about earlier, is run away from the packs, right? Which is effectively what yeah. you did. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I developed relationships with people from the, from the press, but I did not move. Like, the press moved in a pack. It would be like a conference or something, everybody would show up. And, um, and I was often at situations either before that or, or after. I wasn't that interested. I mean, sometimes we'd crisscross. And there were, you know, people in the press that, that helped me enormously. Um, uh, there was a, uh, Ed Wong is in the film, and, yeah. um, and I met all the people who were running the security. And at one point, I needed a ride. And I just called the people from the Times, and they said, yeah, we'll get you there. And so there was a, a group of security people. So it was collegial people. with you. Yeah. Like, what did they make of you? And I think they, they thought I had pretty extraordinary access and, um, and that I was doing something that was different than what they were doing. You know, I wasn't, my, you know, I was working on something long form. Yeah. Okay, just cutting in here briefly, uh, this next clip is all about gaining trust. Here's Crib. Um, let's move to the second movie, The Oath, uh, which was um, released in 2010. I... I hadn't seen this movie, and I downloaded it, and I've watched it twice this week. It's just a fascinating story, mainly because your main character is just the most vexing protagonist you, you can imagine. And again, what I want you to talk about is how you got this guy to agree to this long-term, intimate access, including, you know, putting a camera in his, he's a cab driver now, so he's the former bodyguard of Osama bin Laden, who's now a cab driver, and why in God's name would he do this with you? Like, how did you get this guy to do it? There's no upside for him at all, as far as I can tell. Like, why would he, why? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, this was a hard film to make because it took, actually took a long time to get the access. I met him very early on. I'd gone to Yemen with an idea, and the idea was to film somebody returning home from Guantanamo. I was interested in that kind of how do you, how do you leave Guantanamo and come home. Um, and I was actually also interested to see if I could find a case of somebody who was like the wrong person and, 
um, you know, returning home. We know that there are those cases exist where like the, you know, the vegetable salesperson got sold by their neighbor for a bounty. And those stories, we know they exist from Guantanamo. Um, so I, I got there and the second day I was there, I met Abu Jandal, which was obviously a very, very different story. Um, this was somebody who, who worked for bin Laden. He was his personal bodyguard. He, um, he, he went back to Yemen in 2000 and he was arrested. So he actually was not in the loop of of the attacks, um, uh, and he turned out to be actually a very valuable witness. Um, uh, Lawrence Wright in the Looming Tower writes about it. To p people know there's a section where it, um, they describe this really remarkable interrogation. It was by, done by Ali Soufan uh, less than a week after 9-11, where Abu Jandal um, was interrogated uh, and read his Miranda rights. You know, so this is like at the height of you know, this uh, Ali Soufan, who'd lost like, a close colleague in the Twin Towers, goes into a cell room and read the guy's Miranda rights. And, and then there's this lengthy um, interrogation that, that yields reports that actually informed the original invasion of Afghanistan. So when I met this guy, I was like, well, this is not what I was looking for. This was not the story I was looking for. Yeah. But I had read um, Larry's book, and I just felt like this was a really fascinating story to understand. Why would somebody who was so close to bin Laden ultimately... Um, testify and, and give evidence um, about 9-11. Um, and, and so I really wanted to understand it. But I was very nervous about the story. I was nervous, not, not just because like the, the risk factor, but nervous of, as, a, as a filmmaker. Because he's a person who's very mercurial, very untrustworthy. Um, he's, a, I guess you'd say, a, um, uh, an anti-hero, an yeah. unreliable narrator, all those things. I want to know what you actually think about him, because I don't mm -hmm. even know what I think about him. I mean, what do I think? I mean, Abu Jandal, um, I think he agreed. I mean, this was, this was an example of a, of a film that wouldn't have been possible if I wasn't able to spend a lot of time on the ground. Because I met him on the first trip, and I, and I learned that he was driving a taxi and I was like how is it that you're driving a taxi and that we have you know 200 people in Guantanamo can't make you know? it up yeah I, and and so I was kind of was like wow I really wanted to put a, ta a camera in his taxi cab and I asked him right away and he said well maybe we could do that and so then I left and I went back and I said I'm, I'm back and I'm back here and can I do that and he's like oh really like he you know, I think that there's a kind of politeness in Arab culture where you say yes because you don't like to say no and so but I took it as a yes and um and, and I just kept coming back, and I was and I was persistent. And I, but I do think that he, that I was that that he that he had um, criticisms of what had happened, and and I think that that's why he agreed to to let me film him. And our final clip is about Citizen Four and Edward Snowden, starting with that email. September 2013, and you receive the email that everyone in this room wishes they received. And, it's and we all hate you a little bit. A little bit we hate you. And it reads as follows. Laura, at this stage, I can offer nothing more than my word. I'm a senior. We've all received that email, right? I'm a senior government employee in the intelligence community. I hope you understand that contacting you is extremely high risk. For now, know that every border you cross, every purchase you make, every call you dial, every cell phone tower you pass, friend you keep, site you visit and subject line you type, 
in the hands of a system whose reach is unlimited, but whose safeguards are not. It was signed Citizen Four. So take us back to the moment you read that. Well, I mean, it, it actually relates a bit to this, this previous question. In a certain way, I kind of was primed. Like, I actually thought he was kind of right. Every board I crossed, they did seem to stop me and question me. And so I didn't just write it off as being paranoid. Um, as, a, as a documentary filmmaker, I'm usually the one who's going into the field and asking, seeking access. So I actually don't get these emails. This was, I think, the first anonymous person who contacted me ever. So, um, uh, Is that right? Yeah. Wow, that's a pretty good record. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't get those. I don't, I just, I, I do now. I have a pen. <laughs> <laughs> um, I took it, uh, so it was first, it was, the first email was a, from a, a friend, um, Michael Lee, who works at the Freedom of the Press Foundation as a technologist there, and he said, I got an email from somebody who wants your, pro your key, in my encryption key. And I said, sure, here it is. And then, and then I got um, this response back. And then once we got an encrypted channel, then I got this email. Um, at this point, I'd already been working on um, filming around um, NSA and, um, and whistleblowing. I'd been filming with William Binney for over a year at this point. So I was fully um, aware of a couple things. One, the enormous risk that the source was taking by contacting me. Two, the enormous reach of the NSA. Um, and that he was very right, that, that what, that everything he was saying, you know, that, that in order to engage him, I needed to use any um, skill that I knew to secure the communication because I knew this person was putting their life on the line. It was clear to me in, in the first two emails. You know what strikes me about this email is it's really well written. Snowden's a good writer. What does he need you people for? Like, he could have written <laughs> okay. this. That's good writing. Um, so you have to, you know, you put it into context. He'd been trying to, uh, as the story's been widely told, um, had been trying to get Klan on encryption, and it didn't work out. So I think that when he reached out to me, I was sort of, he wanted to make sure I paid attention, and I think he probably, you know, then crafted, you know, he's put some time. I think he did, actually, it's they are beautifully written, all yeah, of his yeah. emails. I mean, I haven't published all of them. They're quite extraordinary. Um, and, and I think he was, he didn't want to be ignored, I think. At what point, you had to be skeptical, but both of you are very senior journalists, you had to uh, have worried about the credibility and whether or not there was any uh, potential for disaster in terms of publishing this information. What, what was the moment where you felt this is 100% solid? I mean, so... I was in contact with Snowden for six months before going to Hong Kong, so there was a long process of back and forth. And I did, at the very beginning, was you know trying to test the ground to make sure this, this was not some sort of entrapment, um, as the, and, and, or, and just to understand motivation. So we had a long back and forth, but I hadn't seen any documents, so it was always possible that it was a you know was was a hoax, was entrapment, was a crazy person, um, and so I didn't know. Um, uh, for a while, but my instincts pretty early on were to take it super seriously and and accordingly to use to be really really careful with communication. Like I've never, I've actually never 
been so paranoid as I was in those months of, of communicating because I figured like I was already on a watch list so I had to assume that you know that I, that my you know true name and my communications had uh, that I couldn't do anything on, the, on that on, with those machines and so I had you know a whole bunch of layers and levels of different equipment to 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 communicate with him um, but it wasn't so I had received a file before going to Hong Kong, and but it was I didn't have the decryption key. And right before going, um, I received a decryption key, and that's when I saw documents. And that's when, of course, when I knew it was. That this was Sorry, why, real. why would he not share with you the documents in the six months leading up to the meeting? Just for security reasons, or totally, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Even yeah. encrypted, he didn't feel nope. safe. Yeah. So I have to ask you. He's obviously a very divisive um, figure. Um, people feel very strongly about Edward Stone one way or the other. What do you think? I mean, I think that he's somebody who saw things that he felt were a threat and a danger to democracy and that the, the public should know about and we should have a debate about, that we should not have intelligence agencies that are making decisions, that there should not be secret interpretations of laws that impact all of our lives, that happen behind closed doors, that that that's not how a democracy should function, and that, they, and that there were violations of the Constitution. And I believe that that's why he reached out to us. People can disagree with that, but there's no other motivation, I mean, you know, um, f for him contacting journalists. Thanks for listening. On the next episode, we talk to the Marshall Project's Christy Thompson and NPR's Joseph Shapiro about their joint investigation on criminals released straight from solitary confinement back to the streets. It doesn't typically go well, and surprise, surprise, it was not an easy story to nail down. We knew this was happening like thousands of times a year. I mean, there was thousands of people in the U.S. who had been through this. And but what we found is like I was trying to go through reentry organizations, local prisoner family support groups, et cetera. And what a lot of people were telling me um, is that these people in many states kind of disappear. Thanks to Christy and Joe for talking with us. That should be a good one. And it will be available to stream and download on July 27th. IRE members can listen to the entire conversation between Poitras and Crib on our website. We'll have a link in the show notes. You can find that in all of our past episodes at ire.org slash podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. If you have any questions or comments, please do shoot us an email. IRE web editor Sarah Hutchins edits the podcast, and you can reach her at web at ire.org. You can reach me at Sean S. That's S-H-A-W-N-S at ire.org. That's it for this episode from Columbia, Missouri. I'm Sean Chinnaman. Podcast.